would pose a question to you this morning. What would it be like to be named supplanter, deceiver, the name meaning liar, conniver, perhaps ingrate, and then in a sense to live up or down to that name for much of your life? Well, meet Jacob. Jacob's a guy whose name means just that. He was a man who most of his life, or at least up to this point that we'll study today, had lived his life according to his own reason, to his own uh, ways of doing things, of being coy, of being wily, of being able to think quick, to react. He had amassed great resources. And so he just kind of worked his way through life. And yet, as life always has it, if we live long enough, there come days of reckoning and there come days when we face consequences of our choices, things we've said or done, things we intended to do or did not do, and so it is now for Jacob. In Genesis chapter 32, I would direct your attention to verses beginning in verse 22, Genesis 32, and I want to kind of place this introductory material under the idea of the phrase that's found in verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. Alone. Loneliness is something that is difficult for most of us to face. There is an awful loneliness to Jacob because here's where he is in his life. Uh, Jacob has amassed much. He has a large family. He has a lot of cattle, a lot of money, a lot's going on that we would say, good for you. But there were experiences that he had had because of his own nature, sinful nature, and because of things that had happened and things that he had done that now he was at a place in his life that he felt all alone. Behind him was his father-in-law Laban. By behind, I mean, you can read the book of of Genesis, but in chapter 31, they'd come to a point that, you know, Jacob made his move and he's leaving with Laban's daughters and his grandchildren and with that which he had accumulated rightfully from Laban. But, you know, with Laban, he had to earn things over time and again. But now he's gone and Laban tracks him down. Why are you doing this? And he goes through all those things again. The end of that particular encounter is they heaped up some stones as a covenant between the two, gave the place a name. But basically what they agreed to do was Laban said, I'm not going to pass these stones to go where you are with the intention of doing you harm. And if you come back toward home, at least Laban's home, and you pass this covenant, these stones, you're saying, you're agreeing that you're not coming to see me to do me harm. So they had made that agreement. As unpleasant as it sounds, at least an agreement has been struck. Facing him, behind Laban, facing him is Esau, his twin brother, his brother who was born first, his brother from whom he had sto uh, stolen his birthright and the father's blessing. His brother that something like 20 years ago said, if I ever see you again, I'll kill you. And now that encounter is here. So Jacob has spent time praying, as you would imagine he would, and Jacob did what you and I often do. He began to remind God of all the promises that God had made to him. 
He said, God, you promised me that my descendants will be as the sand of the sea, as the sand, that they're going to be numerous. So if you said that and you meant that, then what Esau may do to young and old, mother and child, and to me can't take place. Oh, God, don't let that happen. And he had gathered gifts. You can read about that. All the gifts that he was going to be sending to Esau ahead of him and ahead of his family, perhaps to assuage the anger that Esau might still be bearing in his heart and life. You know, there are people that can go through all of life and nurture anger or a root of bitterness and keep it going, keep it fresh, keep it there. And so maybe Esau had done that. And he's left all alone. He sent his wife's children away. The presents are on their way. All that's being done. And now all that's left is to wait for tomorrow. He's alone. I think he's afraid. And maybe he's ashamed. And there he is. With that in mind, let's look now at what takes place. Verse 22, Genesis 32. He arose that night, took his two wives, two female servants, 11 sons, crossed over the fort of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go for the day breaks. But he, that is Jacob, said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It seems that God, and this man was God in flesh, very well could be the pre-incarnate Christ. Hosea references it in chapter 12 and speaks about that when this encounter was going on that uh, Jacob was weeping and praying, you know, weeping through the night praying through the night, wrestling with God, invisible God in flesh and likely the pre-incarnate Christ. Hosea calls him the Lord of hosts. That is the name that's used of the Lord. And so this wrestling is going on. It seems like the man was an enemy of Jacob in a way, does it? I mean, you don't think about just fighting with friends, just a fight to fight. But here it is, and they're, they're wrestling through the night. And when you look upon it, you think, how could that be, the pre-incarnate Christ, God in flesh, how could it be that it's a standoff? That it seems like that Jacob maybe has his moments, and, and then the man has his moments, and all through the night, and how did that, how did that take place? Well, it didn't take place like that. It could be likened to a, a father with his children, his boys particularly, and maybe they roughhouse around some, you know, and, and uh, until they get a little older into teenage years and older, then it's not fun for father anymore. But that's another story. But you see how that you just kind of wrestle and roughhouse a little bit, and, and really what's happening is the father's just kind of keeping the son, the child out there at uh, arm's length, you know, let them come in and kind of push them away, let them get close and, and all of that sort of thing. It appears that's what the man was doing with Jacob. Of course, they wrestled through the night, but when the Lord had had enough, what did he do? He just touched him. 
just touched the socket and the hip was out of joint. Just touched him. It seemed like maybe at times he thought I'm getting the upper hand or I'm doing good or I'm going to get what I'm going to ask for in just a minute. But it was just when you're wrestling against an all-powerful God, realize this is going to change at any moment. Whenever God says enough, it's enough. And so though the wrestling match seemed to be even, just a touch. And his hip was out of joint. And the Lord said, uh, let me go. It's, it's time for me to go. Now you say, you just said that he had all power. He just touched him. Why is he saying let me go if he can do whatever he wants to do? It, it's not for the Lord. It's for, it's for Jacob. The night perhaps covered some of the glory and some of the radiance of the Lord. And beyond all of that, he couldn't stand before the Lord. And, and with the break of the new day, so he said, let me go. And Jacob said, in effect, you know, I've not wrestled all night. I've not held on all night without saying to you, please, please give me a blessing. I can't let you go until you give me a blessing. Now, let me tell you, if I were to place a point on this particular passage, this part I would say is sufficiency is moving to dependency. The all-sufficient Jacob, the wily one, the supplanter, the deceiver, the conniver, who always found a way to get through things, has come to a place he can't make it. And what moves the heart of God at this particular point, I think, is where he's moving to the point that he's submitting himself. He's surrendering to the Lord. And he's saying to the Lord, please don't go. I can't let you go until you give me a blessing. So here we find what's taking place. And out of that, there's going to be a little memento left that we'll talk about more of that hip being out of joint. He's going to remember the encounter. And friends, when you're all alone and you're going through whatever you're going through, you remember the experience, don't you? You remember the experience. You remember what it was like. You remember even as we sang wonderfully about no longer being a slave to fear. Some of us, maybe many of us, maybe most of us, know at different times in our life that we have, in a sense, been a slave to fear because of things, because of life, because of circumstances, because of certain people, because of certain mistakes, because of sin. We realize what it's like to be a slave to fear, and so we find this man alone and afraid and facing the uncertainty of a new day. There's a brokenness we're beginning to see about Jacob. And friends, let me just say this to you. When you're in the presence of God in a powerful way, there's a lot of different things that you can sense and feel, but brokenness is one of them. You know, when we're in the presence of God and we realize all that God is, it reminds us of all that we're not. And we're reminded of how perfect and holy and wonderful and powerful He is, all the things we're not. There's a brokenness that comes. But the brokenness in itself is a blessing because we've been in the presence of God and we have seen and experienced the power of God. So there's nothing wrong about a measure of brokenness in our life. Well, let's read on and see some other scene. Sufficiency turns to dependency, but now 
See how his struggling turns to yielding in verse 27. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. He said, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. He said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel or Penuel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. The Lord said, what's your name? He said, my name is Jacob. He said, it's not Jacob anymore. There's a new name that you have. What's your name? My name is Saul of Tarsus. Your name is no longer Saul, it's, it's Paul. What's your name? My name is Abram. No, it's not Abram anymore. It's Abraham. You'll be the father of many nations. What's your name? Cephas, Simon, Rock. What's your name? Jacob. No, it's going to be Israel. Because you've not overcome me, you've not prevailed against me, but you have persevered. You've prevailed in that way, you've persevered. You've struggled with God, you've struggled with man, and, you, and you've, you've kept going. And your name is now going to be Israel. A wonderful name means so much in Scripture and to us. Israel, which really means God striving, God striving. So when you're moving from struggling to yielding, you're moving from your own flesh and your own strength to God's, that, that's a good name. It's God striving now. It, it's God taking the battle. It's, it's God working in my life. It's, it's God taking over. So that's what your name is going to be. Well then, well, what's your name? Jacob asked. What's your name? And no answer was given. Again, Hosea mentions the Lord of hosts is the name. But the name wasn't given. And why? Maybe many, many years ago now, Luther said it so well and best. He said he thought the failure to reply leaves the name as well as the whole experience shrouded in mystery, and mysteries invite reflection. This would have been an experience shrouded in mystery, wouldn't it? What's your name? Where'd you come from? Why are you wrestling with me? All those kinds of things. And, and friends, here's, here's the point that I would make about that. Experience with God always has the touch of mystery. The touch of mystery. The mystery of why, of all the people in the world, why does God care about us? And does He really know our name? And like Psalm 139 tells us, He thinks about us all the time as individuals. That's a mystery to me, isn't it to you? That God would care about me like that? What's your name? There's a mystery. When you go through experiences of God, I hope they always leave you, leave you with a sense of awe, reverence, mystery. Because if you can figure it out, if you can analyze what happened and come to what you understand about it and what happened and what it means and all those kinds of things, then friends, I think that's more a characteristic of our flesh than of our faith. Faith always has some mystery about it. And so here, though he had liked to know the name, he was not given the name, but he was given a blessing. In your experiences with God, how would you describe them? I mean, 
when you're going through that challenge in life, when that relationship has blown up, when you're concerned about that job or, or your health or your marriage or your children or your parents or whatever it may be, illness, health, and you feel alone. People can be all around you. People can be encouraging you, but you feel alone. And God is there. And God comes to you. And though it's a comfort to you, the God of the universe, the God who spoke worlds into being, God is experiencing or going through an encounter with me. How does that leave you? Well, it's awesome. But it's also, as old writers used to say, terrible. And they're not using terrible as something that's just bad, but just terrible meaning awesome as we would use it. It's just that kind of experience when God comes. So here's Jacob. Are you following him? Israel now. He's moved from dependence, to, from sufficiency to dependency. From kind of a defiance to reliance upon God. His own sufficiency to dependency. He's gone through the struggle, but he's moving from struggling to yielding and just saying, would you bless me? And now it's just before daybreak. And now it's before the day that he had dreaded probably for 20 years that he was going to be face to face with his brother. His brother that he had stolen his birthright. He had stolen the father's blessing. He had taken from his brother what was rightly his brother's. And now he's going to face him. And he doesn't know what's going to happen. But before he faces that great challenge, he had encountered God. He had encountered the Lord. So look with me now in verse 31. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Verse 32, that's not something that God ordered the people to do. It's just something they did because of their respect for Jacob, for Israel. And so they began to not eat that particular place. So the sun is coming up. The Lord is gone. It's a striking picture that is here. The Lord's gone. Jacob's gone through that experience. The sun's up. It's a new day. And Jacob is going to be reminded every step of the way that something's different. Because now he walks with a limp. Takes that first step that day, he's, he's limping. My, that hurts some, you know, or that something's not all right, and he begins to limp. You know, the way we walk is always kind of interesting, isn't it? Some people have such a nice gait, a nice walk. I've, I've not had that ever, I don't think. Maybe it's messing up knees playing ball as a young man. Maybe it's the back issues that come our way a little later. But I get up in the morning, hit the floor, do a few exercises, hear all those things pop. You wonder what all's popping, but it's popping. You get up and say, well, I wonder how the walk's going to be today. Walks are individual. Nobody walks exactly the same as somebody else, it seems. Jacob's now walking with a limp. 
I'd always pictured him when I'd read about him, particularly in light of this passage, as Jacob being a guy that kind of had a swagger about him. Hey, man, everything's great. Everything's fine. I'm a smart guy, resourceful. I can get it done. So I just kind of walk through life, take what comes, bring it on, bring it on. I'm ready for it. But not any longer. He now walks with a limp. Things have changed. And the point I'm making is this. So you know where I'm going with this probably. Is that we all walk with a limp if we're honest. We all walk with a limp. We've had experiences and we're not the same as we were. Maybe we're better because of it. Hopefully we are. Maybe we're better able to help people. Maybe we're better able to understand and and be so blessed and accepting of the grace of God. Maybe because the grace of God has so covered our lives that we've learned how to extend it to other people. You know, that's the thing about life. That's the thing about faith. Friends, nobody from the moment they're saved until they go to heaven is going to live a sinless life. You know that. But you live a forgiven life. And because you've received grace, surely before the Father, we can allow grace to flow through us with the experiences of life. I look back on my days as a pastor for many years, and when I was a young man, I loved the people, I loved the Lord, I loved the church, I loved the Bible. But I look back and I, and I see I didn't understand some things. I wasn't as empathetic about some things and some situations that people went through until I experienced them myself. It wasn't that I didn't care. I did. But listen, you can't help being young any more than you can help being old. Age is one thing we don't have any control over. We just live through it. So you don't have the experiences when you're young often that you do later on. So when my father died suddenly... I understood how people felt that had lost loved ones suddenly. When I went through a, a bout of cancer some years ago, I understood what other men with prostate cancer had gone through. I, I understood. Prior to then, it wasn't that I didn't care and that I didn't pray and that I didn't feel for people, but, you know, once you experience something, it's a little different. Now, there's two ways of going about that. One, we need to be careful. And when we say to people, I understand what you're going through. A dear friend of mine who's in heaven now is a wonderful pastor over on the East Coast for many years. His son is a pastor, and we stay in touch a little bit. I'm reading some of the sermons that he's preaching in a series at his church. and He tells a story of after his father died. He was a young man when his dad died. And they were very close. And it was a grievous time for him, just like what you've gone through. He said one well-meaning person, they, they meant well, they meant well. But they came to him and said, right after his dad died, I know how you feel. I had to bury my dog last week. Now I'm a dog lover. Our dogs are part of our family. You love the dogs, the animals, the pets, and all that. But listen... There's no way to make that like losing your dad or your mom or your son or your daughter or your friends. There's no way that. So the cliches of life 
if we'll let them, will fall away as we limp through life. Not limp in a, oh, woe is me, feel sorry for me, but the experiences that have gotten me where I am, I, it's almost like I, I limp proudly because I realize that the blessing I enjoy, the life that I live is because of the Lord, because of what He's done for me. And listen, pal, I may not understand exactly what you've gone through or what you're dealing with, but let me just say to you, when I say to you, I, I'm praying for you, I am. Because I may not have experienced what you've experienced, but I've had the experiences. And because of that, I can tell you, God will prevail. And God will guide. And God will bless. And at the end of the day, we only have two options when these kind of experiences come. We either turn toward God or we turn away from God. And I'm convinced, even when I don't understand everything, the safest place for me, the best place for me, is always turning toward God. What do I have when I turn away? I had what Jacob had. Maybe can work through this, can talk about this, can act like this, can fake your way through this. You, you've got what you've got, but is that really enough? It's an interesting movie that's come out. The Zookeeper's Wife. The reason it's kind of interesting to me, it's in World War II, Warsaw, Poland. And I had read when I was studying for this sermon some time ago about an instance in Warsaw, Poland, so it kind of just drew my attention. Warsaw was bombed by Germany for six years. Time the war was over, only a fraction, a small fraction of the people had been able to stay and live through the bombing and live in Poland. But when the Nazis were defeated, as you can imagine, a number of people came back into Warsaw by the thousands and the thousands, home, coming back home. Warsaw was virtually destroyed. Some people had pictures of Warsaw before the war and so people a lot of times with just their bare hands and salvaging rocks and stones out of the rubble began to rebuild their city and they were so good at building and so meticulous about things that when they looked at a picture of a building if that building's roof had a slight sag in it when they built it back they built it with a slight sag in it that's home that's the way they remembered it. That's the way it was to be. But to me, a strange thing happened. Many countries suffered great damage, Germany being one. And I've read where that in the passing of time, some in Germany sent a request to some of the artisans, the builders in Poland and Warsaw, and asked if they might come and help them rebuild. Now, Believe it or not, they did. Some did. You might say, well, I don't know how you can do that. I don't think I could ever do that. I totally agree. That's the human side of who we are. You'd say that's human nature. Well, it is. But if you call yourself a child of God, you've been endowed with divine nature as well because Jesus lives in you. And when he lives in you, that means we're to live like Jesus would live. 
Better than that, we're to allow Jesus to live his life through us. And Jesus would whisper in our ears, listen, I know what I've done for you. You know what I've done for you. You know the grace that I shower on you. If you're mine and I'm living through you, we're going to extend grace to people and love to people and a better way and an eternal way. I think Jacob learned that lesson because he then would bear the name of Israel. God strives. We have a new name too. Christian. Christ follower. Believer. We have a new name. And if there's one thing our world needs to see is something distinctive and different about those of us who name the name of Christ. Don't you think? Let's bow together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these brothers and sisters here in Frisco. I pray that you'll bless your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.